Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. I would like to introduce my guest, Dr. Hector Acosta. Dr. Hector Acosta retired from the Air Force after 28 and a half years of service, and during his military career, he spent 111 days as a prisoner of war. He was awarded with two distinguished flying crosses, a bronze star with valor, two purple hearts, among many other awards. After he retired from the Air Force, he earned his PhD and currently works in the headquarters Air Force Recruiting Service. I've met Hector in 2014 at a Human Factors Engineering Advisory Group conference, and I was presenting, and I remember I was anxious and didn't know anybody, and the first thing that I recall was Hector's warm and welcoming presence. At some point during our conversations, I learned that Hector was a prisoner of war, and he was gracious to share his story with me at the time. I remember we talked for hours, and I asked you questions, and you patiently answered, and I remember feeling inspired by your experience of resiliency, and I was in awe of how humble and lighthearted and positive you were, and I'm honored to introduce you to the audience. Dr. Hector Costa, tell us a little bit about yourself, and let's start with when and why you joined the Air Force, and how your military career progressed. Oh, wow. Uh, well, uh, thank you. Thank you, first of all, for asking me to take part in this. I think it's I think it's a, a, an endeavor with a, a great potential to do good for people who are trying to get ready and address this whole issue of grit and resilience. Um, yeah, thank you for the kind introduction. I am a backseater, weapon systems operator, you know, steely-eyed guy in back in a tactical fighter called the RF-4 Phantom. That's what I flew in Southeast Asia. I am as you said, currently working as a federal civil service employee for recruiting service, the gateway for the Air Force, and I'm, I'm loving every minute of it and will have to be retiring soon. Now, why did I join the Air Force? My father and my uncle both served in the Army Air Corps during World War II. When I was a young boy growing up, my father worked at Kelly Air Force Base as a civilian employee mechanic, crew chief, sometimes a metal worker, all kinds of things on the big bombers there at Kelly Air Force Base. And I had the occasion when I was very, very young, he got called up in the reserves to go with him to Mountain Home, Idaho. I was three and a half years old, and I still remember standing at the base of a wheel of a B-36 bomber, and the wheels were huge, and I remember standing full height, uh, not able to reach the bottom of the rim of a tire. I fell in love with the airplanes and the Air Force. When I was a young boy, I used to sit on the roof and catalog airplanes that flew over. And so when I was in college, when I left the seminary, because I went to the seminary in high school and two years in college, when I left the seminary, I fell in love to the woman that I'm married to now. I was trying to decide what I should do, accept a fellowship to someplace in the Northeast to live like a church mouse, <laughs> earning an advanced degree, or should I join the Air Force and fly? Mm-hmm. So. I did. I I made the decision to join the Air Force and signed up and went to pilot training, failed miserably uh, at that endeavor. And then I uh, I, I must have missed that part of the story. (laughs) (laughs) And then then, uh, it's not 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 everyone has the stuff to be a good pilot. And I apparently didn't. But I chose to continue my flying career. The Air Force gave me that opportunity. I went off to nav school much more in keeping with my kind of uh, of brain (laughs) and enjoyed very much becoming a navigator and went off to upgrade in the RF-4, which is a tactical fighter type reconnaissance aircraft. And that's what I flew in Southeast Asia. So why did I join the Air Force? Well, 
a lot of reasons, but the biggest was my dad had some function in inspiring me to join. Uh, not that he ever encouraged me to, but I fell in love with the whole idea of flight and those beautiful machines that do what they do. Tell us a little bit about what happened, how you were captured. I kind of want to jump right into the story. How many years have you flown before you ended up in a Southeast Asian and was captured? Well, altogether, including training, I had less than two full years of flying wow. uh, under my belt when I got shot down. Uh, I was what they call pipeline to Southeast Asia. So after I finished air crew training and the several survival schools, standard survival, water survival, and jungle survival school, I arrived at Udorn. Royal Thai Air Base in Thailand on the 4th of July, 1972, having you know just completed the necessary courses of training, first to earn my navigator wings, and then to upgrade in the RF-4 as a backseater. So I arrived there then. I'd been flying there about six months. I was on my 92nd combat mission when I got shot down. It was December 9, 1972. We were on a medium altitude mission north of the DMZ, which takes us heavily into what I'll refer to as bad guy country. You know, we were, mm-hmm. we were at wars. Mm-hmm. We referred to the other guys as bad guys. I'm sure they referred to us as other colorful language kind of descriptions. Anyway, we were flying a standard mission. I had escorts for fighters were with us because we were going far enough north that we might get jumped by MiGs. And so they were with us as escort. And we got attacked very shortly after making landfall. We'd come in off the Gulf of Tonkin. We knew there were threat rings of surface air missiles. And we were going to pass through a large segment under threat from those missile sites. And we were attacked by two of them at the same time, and multiple missiles were in the air. And we dodged one missile, saw several, and finally got hit by another. It it went off in front of us uh, maybe 100 yards, which is less than that, maybe 100 feet. It was pretty close. The aircraft got riddled with shrapnel. My front seater was wounded. I was wounded. Aircraft was on fire immediately. I was able, fortunately, to eject us both out of the aircraft. I was uh, smoking. (laughs) <laughs> as they say in the in the parachute my parachute was damaged so i i made a rather brisk descent landed with bad guys close they were firing their weapons they were close enough i could hear individual voices shouting i threw my equipment up a hill and i ran down the hill as fast as i could go got separation from the bad guys it took 30 hours before there's a number of things that go on in between there, made contact with my people, et cetera, et cetera. There were two, two separate search and rescue attempts to get me out, very, very bravely executed by people in Jolly Green Giants with a lot of air power trying to suppress the enemy. But we were right in the middle of their bad guy country. This was north of Vin, and there were gun emplacements all over the place and lots of militia and regular troops in the areas. I got captured after 30 hours in the middle of my second search and rescue attempt. I had popped my flare, and it was a question of whether or not the good guys and the jollies got to me before the bad guys did. The bad guys were very close. They opened fire on my position immediately. I was wounded at that time. Again, I'd been wounded in the airplane and captured and taken to a village after walking a little bit of a distance, stripped down to my skivvies, uh, showing a little bravado by demanding a cigarette. (laughs) So so let me slow down you a little bit here. I want to ask more about your commander, Major Billy Joe. Uh, Tell me a little bit about his role in this and how did he die? And maybe the first hour, uh, what was that like? Well, an important thing to understand is that like any com- professional in a combat situation, you've got a job to do. And for the most part, that's what you concentrate on. You concentrate on doing what you have to do as well as you can do it. Billy Joe Williams was a major, you know, so a lofty rank for a young lieutenant. He had just joined the squadron about two weeks prior, coming in to be our operations officer, second in command in our squadron. There's a squadron commander, there's the OPSO. And it was his second tour of duty in Southeast Asia. He had flown previously in RF-101s, which was the old voodoo reconnaissance aircraft that's famous for the photos that were taken of the missiles during the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 60s. He was one of those rare fellows. He was old, old recce. He, in fact, when he first got trained as a tactical reconnaissance pilot, it was in the RF-84s, right towards the end of their use in the Air Force. And then they were followed by the Voodoos, and he upgraded in those, and he flew those through several tours, I'm sure, and then transitioned to the RF-4 when that aircraft was introduced and the Voodoos were phased out. So he was on his second combat tour. And so an experienced flyer, very much familiar with tactical recce and what was involved there. 
and with Southeast Asia. I was proud to be flying with him. He met with me the evening before. This was very rare. He had met with me, and he specifically asked me that evening not to rotate something in the aircraft called a command selector valve. Now, most aircraft commanders will, in combat or in bad weather, will ask you to rotate the valve for takeoff and prior to landing so that if something goes wrong and they need to have all their attention on handling the aircraft, they want to have their hands free. And so they ask you to rotate the command selector valve, which allows the back seater to eject the front seater, okay, along with himself. So the back seater, the way the sequenced ejection in a two-man aircraft like the RF-4 was set up is if the front seater pulls his handle, the back seater goes first, mm-hmm. and then the front seater. If the back seater goes without rotating the command selector valve, he goes alone, mm-hmm. okay? Front seater remains. Mm-hmm. And if the back seater pulls the handle with the command selector valve rotated, the back seater again goes first, and then the front seater. The difference in time is about... 80% of a second. So mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's 0.8, 0.8 seconds between when the back seater goes up the rail and when the front seater goes up the rail. But that's sufficient time that the rocket motor from the front seater doesn't burn the back seater on the way out. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's a safety thing that the back seater goes first and then the front seater. If the front seater were to go first, his rocket motor could do damage. Anyway, so Billy Joe had asked me, and he had apologized for asking me not to rotate the commander's selector valve. He said, I've been a single-seat fighter pilot for most of my career, and I don't want you to take this personally. And I assured him I wasn't going to take it personally. That's why it was a briefing item for every flight, what pilot's preference was. And he told me about his family. He told me where they were living. He told me he had two sons, 111 and 114. I had never gotten this kind of a pre-brief from anybody I'd flown with Mm -hmm. in the entire time I'd ever flown. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an incredible kind of thing. And I really appreciated that he did that. You know, he'd gone out to the officers club where most of us went after a day at the squadron and he had looked for me, found me and made a point of talking to me. So he's a very personable, nice guy, big, tall fellow from Virginia. So you were able to eject Yes, the, the aircraft was on fire. I was able to eject. I'd been wounded, but and one arm wasn't working very well, but I managed to pull the handle. By the time I did pull the handle, I was in a great deal of pain from the flames because it was, it was very hot very quickly. Basically, what happened is the missile strike had damaged the firewall behind me, which is in front of 6,000 pounds of JP-4, the fuel, the jet fuel we have. And so JP-4 flooded the cockpits, basically, at least enough of it sprayed into the cockpits to cause that the cockpits were immediately on fire. And did you already and, know at the time that uh, Billy Joe was, was, uh, was uh, dead? No, no. Uh, and in fact, I think he was alive in the airplane, uh, okay. at least I, I believe he was. I, I rotated the handle because I wasn't going up the rail, because if he had been alive, he, he would have known as well as I did that the airplane was not going to fly anymore, and he would have been trying to eject as fast as he could. So the fact that I was able to beat him to the handle said that maybe something was wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was, I was hollering to get out of the jet the whole time until I was able to rotate the handle and finally get both of my hands on the handles and eject myself. And so basically when we left the jet, for me anyway, hitting the slipstream, we were still moving pretty fast. We were probably at, at about 8,000 feet then with the aircraft descending quickly. The slipstream actually blew out the fire and uh, made a big poof. <laughs> and so I was smoking when I said And because of the damage to my parachute, I was actually spinning at about 8 RPM. And I was able to see my front seater in his full chute on the way down. And I tried to make contact with him on the radio, made contact with one of our fighter escorts on the radio before I had to get into the business of getting ready to, to go into the jungle, into trees, and start my evasion. Were you scared? Do you remember? Was there panic? But- Yeah, no time to be scared. Things had to happen pretty quickly because it didn't have a whole lot of time to get out of the cockpit. So that Mm -hmm. was that was just the hitting the command selector valve on the first try was just just very fortunate. And ejecting was really a no brainer. Doing the things you need to do in the parachute those are kind of automatic, as I've told people. They're they're actually learning objectives when you go through training. But if you don't reach up and grab the risers when you're hanging in a parachute, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, it's a bad day. (laughs) <laughs> and 
if you don't inspect your canopy, since it's the only thing keeping you from <laughs> a, a very fast ride to the ground, then you're crazy. So those things are just automatic. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of things that did happen that were a little different, unanticipated, right? Everything was very visual during the whole evasion activities, then the, then the missile hit and everything prior to that. But then after when I was coming down on the chute, it's like someone suddenly turned on my ears and I, I heard myself panting like an old dog on a mm. hot day in Mississippi, right? Mm. And uh, recognized that I was hyperventilating. So the cognitive part of my brain was sort of observing everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. And it immediately said, stop breathing, dummy. And so I held my breath immediately. So you know, the cobwebs were starting to form because I was hyperventilating. And those stopped immediately when I stopped breathing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So... That was unexpected. I didn't expect to be hyperventilating, but mm-hmm. apparently that was just part of the shock reaction, mm-hmm. you know, to the whole situation. And um, so it, 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 it was handy that uh, I had probably thought something like about hyperventilation through before and just pulled that out and used it and was able to keep that from degrading my performance from there on. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised to be going into trees. There's a different kind of preparation for going into trees than there is from going into flat land. And so I had to do that preparation. And during that process, I figured out how to handle my right arm to be able to do things with an arm that I couldn't bend at the bicep because it had two, I didn't know it then, but it had, well, I discovered on the way down, it had two holes in the right bicep. And so it wasn't cooperating very well. Okay. But figured out how to make the hand do things, and you know, it, the, the grip worked, that sort of thing. The muscles pushing on the arm worked, but the biceps simply didn't, and I had to work around that. But I had that all figured out by the time I hit the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, the radio calls were just basically automatic. I didn't use proper radio protocol all the time, so some of that can slip, and you're still okay. When I hit the ground, the fact that the bad guys were close. I just did some basic deception by throwing my equipment one way, my helmet and my seat pack, uh, throwing them one way and, and running the other. And it worked. It gave me 30 hours before I ended up getting captured. Were you trained to do that or did it just occur to you at the time to, to throw the, the backpack? Uh, no, it, 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 something I think is an important part of when you talk about grit and resilience, I realize that people, when you have it, you don't disengage the coping mechanisms, the thinking, the problem solving. Mm -hmm. And it's how you use what you're trained to do. You know, training can't sequence what you do for every situation. What it can do is provide you kind of a framework for applying whatever problem solving capability you have and to do it at a tempo that's consistent with what's going on. When bullets are flying, you don't have a whole lot of time to look at seven alternatives and and optimize your solution. You got to go with what you think will work as quickly as you can. And I, I think I had that little loop going pretty vigorously. And I think adrenaline helps with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was quite a bit of adrenaline pumping through me during that whole sequence. And then I remember you were telling me about the next 30 hours. Can you tell me a little bit more in detail about what happened? I know you were injured and just some of the ingenious ideas that you had during that time. Kind of walk me through those, I don't those know moments. Genius. <laughs> Once again, that's that's uh, what I remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. When I was running down the hill, I had a flashback to training. I think I might have mentioned this. I often tell it because I give credit to the guys in jungle survival training. A crusty old NCO was teaching the course, and he's the one that did the classic thing of look at the guy next to you. It's likely that he's going to get shot down or be in a survival situation, and he may or may not survive. Poor guy, right? And so we all look at our buddy and go, poor guy, you know. And then, and then he said, if you do find yourself in one of these situations of the kinetic sort, which he meant by, you know, <laughs> you're getting shot at or something mm-hmm. blowing up. Mm-hmm. He said, you're going to react. He said, there isn't a darn thing, and he didn't use the word darn, thing that you can do about that. All of us simply react. And that reaction may or may not kill you. If it doesn't, then what you have to do, he said to all of us, you know, shaved tail lieutenants, he told us, is you're going to have to do the one thing that's going to help you survive. Not guarantee it, but help you survive. You gotta look around, find yourself a flat rock, take a long, cool drink of water or whatever you have to drink, and then think. Because that's what kills people. 
they keep acting and they stop thinking. Mm -hmm. They don't get that thing started, right? You have to start thinking as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And um, so I like to joke that immediately upon running, when I started running down that hill, I was looking, you know, my head was sweeping back and forth looking for a flat rock. <laughs> Which is, of course, ridiculous. <laughs> but where's a flat rock? Did you find one? <laughs> <laughs> well, it turns out it took, it took about an hour and a half before I find a place to hide. And when I did, that became my flat rock. And I took that long, cool drink at that point. Anyway, again, in jungle survival, I had learned to beat the, the people who searched. They, they had these Filipino Indians who uh, the Air Force hired to track you down. They give you a little time to go off running into the jungle in your flight suit, nothing much more. And you were supposed to basically see if you could evade these guys and then make your way back to the base camp without getting caught by them. Okay. And very few people did it, but I was one who did. I did it by going, running very hard for about, uh, you know, 20 minutes and finding a place on a hillside that was very hard to get into, right? It was a bluff with elephant grass growing almost vertically on a near vertical shear face. And I made my way above it. I jumped into the elephant grass and I hid there and I saw several of the Negritos, the natives, they call them Negritos, mm -hmm. uh, pass my position looking for somebody. And they didn't come into that elephant grass because, I mean, they wore loincloths and the elephant grass was very uncomfortable in my flight suit, you know. And so I, I managed to wait until they had circled back. I saw that several of them go back past my position on the way back to the base camp. And then I made my way back to the base camp and I kept all my chips. I never, I never got found, never had to turn a chit over the way it was. If you got caught by them, you'd hand over, then you had three chits. And, you you know, it, when you had no chits, you made your way back to the camp. Or when you heard the big siren that they would sound at the end of the exercise, you were just supposed to make your way in. So when I heard the siren, I just made my way into the camp and I kept all my chits. Okay. So that worked. So when I was running away from the bad guys in uh, North Vietnam, I found something like a bluff something like what I'd done before, found a good place to hide and got organized, got my compass out. I found that all the leather on my gloves, for example, had been burnt away to the wrist, that the nylon on my boots had run. It explained something clearly had damaged my parachute. It sits on a pack at the top of the ejection seat and that had taken hits. I had burns on my arms and on my kneecaps where the flames had jetted through while I was in the cockpit. And I discovered a big hole in my chest <laughs> that really scared me. I found the hole at the top of my flight suit and I opened uh, the flight suit and there was a hole in my t-shirt and then, and then pulled that aside and there was a hole in my chest and I could see the bone mm -hmm. and I didn't know much about chest wounds. So I took a deep breath and I looked for bubbles. <laughs> I didn't see any, so I covered it all up and forgot about it, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, there wasn't much else I could do with it. Mm -hmm. For the burns, I found that the skin was hanging. A lot of it had been melted on my forearms and that sort of thing. Well, when I saw that, I said, there's nothing I can do about that either. And I just basically tightened the wrist straps on the flight suit uh, so that I could keep it as clean as I could. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's really all I could do. People ask about pain. The worst I felt was irritation. I mean, there was, you know, if I moved my arm wrong, I would feel a spike in pain, but I was careful not to do that. And otherwise, uh, I was mainly feeling irritation, sort of like a bad sunburn and some dehydration, which was apparent very early on. I drank all the water that I had with me. I had a couple of pints of water in my G-suit pocket, and that's about all, that's all I had. So I drank those fairly early to stay as hydrated as I could in the hopes that at some time I'd have to move to find water, right? Inside 30 hours, you don't need a whole lot to keep going. So, yeah. And then how was your first night? Because I, at some point you had to sleep, right? You realized it's going to get dark. Right. And, and I, made, I made contact with a fast pack. Uh, F4 noise is very distinctive. Uh, you know, it's a big, growly, noisy airplane. And so I heard F4 noise. And so I made contact on the radio with a fast pack. I did what they call authenticate, basically convince him that, in fact, I'm a good guy. And there are methods for doing that. Mm -hmm. And he went through that whole drill. And then he did a couple of quick passes and sort of confirmed that he had a good idea of where I was. And then he went off to talk to the good guys away from the bad. You know, this was dangerous territory even for him to be flying. And so he got out of there and went and talked to the good guys. 
He airplane noise again about an hour, maybe 40 minutes later, and he had hit a tanker and gotten some gas and gotten his instructions and came back. He informed me that they would not be able to launch a rescue mission that evening. Okay. It was late afternoon when I contacted him first, and then a little later when he talked to me, it was just starting to get dark, and he said they wouldn't be able to do anything that evening, and then I should come up on the radio first light. Okay. Now, training says that when you maintain radio silence, basically you're supposed to turn on your radio like every hour on the hour and listen for anybody trying to communicate with you. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I forgot that part of my training, mm-hmm. and uh, I simply went to sleep. Okay. I was tired and I'd been through a rough day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and say so yes. <laughs> so I, I, I simply went to sleep. And mm-hmm. it was just uh, one of my children. My children call that one of my superpowers. I can sleep anywhere, anytime. <laughs> <laughs> you just tell me I can and I do. <laughs> so, so I figured when the guy says come up first light, I had permission to go to sleep, but I did. So the next morning when I made first contact at airplane noise, it ends up being someone from my squadron, and he's all excited about getting a hold of me. He says, they've been trying to get a hold of you all night, <laughs> which was <laughs> encouraging. <laughs> and uh, he said, he said the guys at the squadron had insisted to the intel people that it was, in fact, me and not my front seater. Because one of the things I messed up on my radio calls when I was coming down on the parachute is I was trying to contact my front seater. So I used his call sign. I said, Kansas 01 Alpha, how do you read? Right. Well, radio protocol says I might have should have done otherwise, right? And so they thought it was Alpha, my front seater. Mm-hmm. See, I'm Bravo. Mm-hmm. I was Kansas mm-hmm. number one. Bravo. Mm-hmm. He was Kansas or Alpha. Mm-hmm. And um, so, in fact, that little screw up made for some confusion mm-hmm. when they interpreted the, the recorded radio call, right? And so the intel folks insisted that I was my front seater, and the guys who knew me and my voice <laughs> insisted it was me. Mm-hmm. And he'll tell intel won the argument for a while. So at first there was some confusion about which of us was communicating on the radio. About Billy Joe, the speculation is radio traffic was intercepted later after I was captured, just to fill this piece in, that two pilots, they referred to everybody in the airplane as pilots, two pilots had been captured, secured. One had to be euthanized because he was too badly wounded to be moved. Mm. That was the intercepted radio traffic. Mm. Right. And since I knew I wasn't the one that was euthanized, the assumption is that Billy Joe mm. had, in fact, um, um, he had told me the night before that he wasn't going to get captured. He said if he were ever to get shot down, he said, I told my wife, don't expect me to come home because I am not going to get captured. Mm. But I don't know if he had a vote on that. At the time when you woke up, did you know? Did you know where was he? No, okay. no. Yeah. I, I saw his chute going down, mm-hmm. but I lost all you know, the after after I hit the ground, mm-hmm. you know, had no indication, no contact, sure. no, no, contact no, no indication of where he was. And at that time, and, I'm guessing you you were hopeful that that you're going to be rescued. Oh, absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that that's that's what you do. Mm-hmm. I knew even as early as the first night when I went through the night that I was in a really, really dense area of of hostile activity, right? There were lots of people, lots of trails, and they were moving up and down those trails all the time. So I knew there were a lot of bad guys around. So I knew it was going to be a tricky extraction. I was prepared, if they told me to, to try and move in some direction or other to facilitate a rescue. But they didn't. They never, at no time did they ask me to move They just basically said, stay put, we know where you are, you know, we'll come get you, you know, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the next morning, talked to the squadron mate. They made contact with a fast fact. Very shortly after that, another fast fact showed up. That's basically an F4 uh, armed to the teeth uh, looking for something to kill, right? But SARS take priority anywhere in a combat zone. So whatever your primary mission, a downed airman takes precedent. So as soon as my guy told the fast fact, he diverted to where I was, made contact again, authenticated again, and set up a first search and rescue mission. So I had to call off because I had a whole troop of bad guys sitting within about, oh, if it was 100 feet, it was too much. Mm -hmm. Um, And at least 30 of them armed with Mm AK-47s. And I was not going to let the helicopter fly into that. So I aborted the first search and rescue mission. Mm -hmm. And then Later in the afternoon of that same day, 
that's how we got to the 30 hours. That was about six hours after I'd gotten shot down the day before on the clock. The second SAR attempt was launched. And when I popped the flare for that, then the race was on. And like I said, three Vietnamese were very close and they opened fire immediately into the smoke. And basically all I could do was get to the ground. While I was on the ground reaching for the radio, one of their AK-47 rounds bounced off this extraordinarily thick skull. And I bled like a pig, but I didn't lose consciousness. And then they came around and basically did a hard capture. What what was that the moment of capture like for you? What was going through your head? Well, I thought when the bullet hit the top of my head, I thought they'd blown the side of my head off. It, it felt like someone very large, like Cassius Clay, as I knew him later to be known as Muhammad Ali. I thought he had just punched me mm. <laughs> on the side of the face. Mm. And I looked over opposite the direction that the bullet came from, and I expected that the last thing I was going to see was my brain splattered all over the ground. Mm. Something about my curious brain said, well, I want to see that. (laughs) (laughs) So I looked over and darn, there was nothing there, and suddenly I felt this hot stuff pouring down the side of my face. And I said, I'm bleeding. (laughs) And they didn't blow my brains out. And so I was kind of happy about that. And then at that point, I go, oh no, the bad guys. It's like that came back to mind, Mm. right? And so as I turned my head to look back in their direction, I felt a stabbing pain in my ribs on my left side. It was a very, very frightened North Vietnamese soldier. He had jammed the barrel of his AK-47 into my ribs to get my attention, right? And he was screaming at the top of his lungs something I couldn't understand. Mm -hmm. And I took one look at his eyes, which were big as those eyes could get. And I said, he's scared and he's got the gun. (laughs) You know? Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So at that point, I got my hands up as quickly as I could and indicated to him that, okay, I'm surrendering. I'm not going to sit here and shoot at you or anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, there was a whole interesting period where a guy with a banana knife disarmed me first of my G-suit hose and then my then my combat masterpiece on my right hip. And then they dragged me down the hill just as a jolly green giant, which apparently had been ambushed and had been distracted by Billy Joe Williams, we speculate, his body in the path between where the helicopter had staged and where my smoke was. And so the helicopter had started towards me, stopped when they saw an airman on the ground, mm-hmm. attempt to pick him up and were subject to an ambush that resulted in them losing an engine and the co-pilot getting wounded and the PJ getting an action. Mm-hmm. And so they were making their egress, passing right over my position when the bad guys had secured me and were starting to drag me down the hill. And then the next 24 hours, what was that like for you? It was, well, like I said, I had that stupid piece of bravado. I was very upset about getting captured, as you might imagine, right? <laughs> and uh, but more angry than well, anything that's, else. Yeah, that, that's that's very interesting that you, you don't yeah, describe I, the sense of fear. You describe well, annoyed. I, I, was, <laughs> I, I think I was too stupid to be afraid. Uh, I mean, it, this was just frustrating because so many people had tried so hard and it was so close, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That it was, it was just very upsetting. And these were... The Vietnamese, they were, I'm not exactly a big guy, but back then I weighed about 160 pounds and I was in very good shape. And here are these little guys, about 90 pounds soaking wet, holding my arms. And I felt like I could just basically just slam them around and, Mm -hmm. you know, and run, except for the third guy who kept an AK-47 pointed at my face. And fortunately, that part of my brain, the survival part said, no, it wouldn't be a good idea Mm -hmm. to do anything silly. And so... I was frustrated all the way down. We went down the hill and went for maybe a mile or so, and we were joined by maybe 25, 30 Vietnamese irregulars. And you could tell because they didn't have complete uniforms. They had pith helmets and AK-47. Some of them had bands tied around their head. They were wearing a whole motley crew of different kind of outfits. And they cheered when we came into a clearing where they were, a little small clearing in the jungle. And they cheered when we arrived, right, when my three guys dragged me into their presence. And whoever was in charge of that group immediately ordered them to take off my flight suit. Well, when they started to do that, I immediately objected with a loud wait. I hollered as loud as I could, wait. And I pulled the sleeve down from one arm and dramatically a piece of skin just (laughs) hung down from the burns on my arm. 
I didn't want them to pull my flight suit over the burns, right? And so I knew they had a guy with a real sharp banana knife, and I pointed to him, and I pointed to my sleeve, and I made the motion of cutting off the sleeve, right? And he understood immediately. He walked up and started cutting, and before long, he had cut the right and left sleeves off of my flight suit, and then... Immediately, the guy in charge barked something, and guys came up, and they started to pull off the flight suit, right? The whole object was to strip me, right? At that point, I remembered I hadn't had a cigarette (laughs) in 20-something hours or 30 hours, and uh, I decided I might not be getting a cigarette for a long time, and I was just pissed still, and I hollered, wait again. And the amazing (laughs) thing is all these people with all these weapons pointed at me all waited. (laughs) <laughs> right? And I, I went through this whole rigmarole of trying to take a pack of stupid cigarettes out of a pocket in my flight suit, getting one very wrinkled-looking camel filter to my mouth and started to try and light it with a matchbook match, right? I got one spark before the guy in charge realized what I was doing <laughs> because the whole time I was swinging my head back and forth, giving them my meanest Mexican stare, and they were <laughs> was holding him off while I did this crap. And so <laughs> it was just so stupid. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> then he hollers something, and they slapped the cigarette out of my mouth, and they, they rattled me around, and they finally stripped me down, and they took my boots, and I was in my tidy whities uh, they tied my wrists together, and they put a blindfold around my face, and then they dragged me through the jungle for a while. What you describe, you still weren't scared that you were annoyed, and you definitely engaged well, it, in... I mean, it, you know, honestly, it'd be crazy not to be frightened by the mm-hmm. whole situation. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so to say I wasn't scared is not true at all. Okay. I was frightened. But things come to the surface, right? And at that point, anger and frustration were more on the surface than the fear, Mm. right? And while a piece of me wasn't going to do anything absolutely insane, apparently I could push the limit of that pretty close uh, every once in a while, right? So it certainly wasn't crippling fear at any point during this exercise. I've had that kind of feeling a couple of times in combat when we've had AAA all around us and we had to fly through it. But this wasn't that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this, this was something different. And fairly early on, I, I was of the assumption since I'd been shot down in North Vietnam rather than in Laos or maybe far south, that there was a good chance that I was a premium, that they were reluctant to just out and out kill me. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. The stage where we were at where prisoners of war were very much in the negotiations for peace that were going on. So some piece of my brain was saying, you have a little room to maneuver because they're not likely to kill you outright. And so I think I took advantage of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was one of the pieces of solving this puzzle that says, how do you survive to get to the next step? Mm -hmm. And what's the next step for you? Okay, they took me to a little village. That was after walking a ways on the way during the walk, we got met by some regulars. And this was a regular, as it turns out, Vietnamese equivalent to a major. And when he directed them to continue down the trail, I basically asked him for my flight suit, you know, by pointy talkie. (laughs) And he had them give me back my flight suit, which I tied on at my waist because the sleeves were torn, right? And then just as he was turning away, I asked for my boots. And he told them to take the laces out of my boots, and I got my boots back. Mm -hmm. So feet that were getting hammered and no blindfold. So... I was moving without a blindfold now with the flight suit tied around my waist and boots. So things got a lot more comfortable than they had been. We went another 30 minutes after we met the major and we came upon what looked like a converted Jeep. The back end of it had a little flat top and they piled me onto that flat top and we drove for a little ways to a village. It was dark now on that second day. This would be the 10th of December and we ended up in a little village where they first put me in a hut, tied me to a pole, and then later came and got me, took me to another hut that had a flat table where they put me and a medic then cut off the excess skin from my arms, right? Uh, Inspected my chest wound and shook his head. (laughs) And a guard gave me a cigarette during that. 
exercise while they were cutting the skin off because I wasn't screaming bloody murder or anything. Uh, that was just simply watching them do it. Uh, he gave me, he offered me a cigarette. I took a puff. Basically, I took my first drag of that cigarette, and it's very wet, uh, sort of French-style tobacco. <laughs> Man, I got a buzz on that first drag. Mm. I mean, it was like it was such rich smoke. <laughs> mm. uh, and, but I really appreciated the cigarette. And so they rubbed my wounds with some purple water, some kind of an antiseptic, I think, mm-hmm. and then left me bare-chested with the wounds the way they were. And the guy refused to do anything with the wound in my chest. He wasn't going to mess with that. So they took me back to the hut. A little bit later, I got rousted from the hut again. There was a Vietnamese lieutenant sitting at a small table, like a field table with a chair. And in front of it was a stool where they had obviously just chopped off the bottom of the legs of the stool. (laughs) You know, so it looked like a milking stool now with Mm -hmm. little frayed wooden ends. And they sat me down on that. And I had my first interrogation. And uh, that was interesting. Uh, He asked for my name and rank and serial number. And then he looked at me right in the eyes and he says, you Lao? And I go, what? He goes, you Lao. And he pointed to his skin, you know, Mm. and pointed at me. Well, I'm a brown guy. And he was a brown guy. Mm. And Laotians were their enemy sometimes, right? So I think he thought I was Laotian, mm. possibly. And I quickly <laughs> disabused him of that. I go, no, 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 Yankee Air Pirate, United States Air Pirate. <laughs> and then he goes, no, why are you brown? Basically, he mm-hmm. did the pointy mm-hmm. button again. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I thought, what? how do I explain genetics? And so I finally, it hit me and I said, ah, Mexican, <laughs> okay? <laughs> And he he had a dictionary at his desk or something, and he flips through it, and he says, Mex, and I go, Mexican, yeah. And he flips, and then he, then he looks, and all of a sudden he goes, ah, you know, like self-revelation. Uh, I, I, to this day, I still believe that young Vietnamese officer thought Mexico had gone to war with Vietnam <laughs> on that day. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so then he gets to the serious stuff. He wants to know my squadron commander's name and how many airplanes in my squadron. He asks those kinds of questions rapidly. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, Lieutenant, if I could, I would tell you. I would, but I can't tell you, you know. And, and, goes, do, they, and do they and, speak and so English or is there an interpreter? In, in English, and he speaks a weak English. He's, he clearly was French trained because uh-huh. he spoke English with a French accent. French accent. Right? Mm-hmm. And He's having trouble communicating, but he's communicating, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just talking to him as I can. And he asks these questions, and I say, I, I wish I could tell you, but I can't. And he says, they will hurt you, and the two guards get closer, and they, they push me at the shoulders with their guns, right? And I go, I really would like to tell you, but I can't. And he goes, they will hurt you. And I said, look. And he, he, he looks, and I say, if you were me, and I ask you for your commander's name. Would you tell me? And he looks at me and he slams his pencil down on the table. He barks something at the guards as he walks away. It's like he, he, he could identify with me. And he was totally frustrated. And he figured the interrogation was over. So he left. And, and what they, was that your intent when you said that to somehow evoke empathy or to somehow to have him relate to you on the human level? Or did you just do it intuitively and without thinking about that? Or, well, or, like, I, did you have a strategy? I, I guess that's what I'm asking. I, I, no, it, 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 I certainly wasn't, wasn't analyzing what I was doing. <laughs> it just seemed to me that here was a young, proud Vietnamese officer. Mm. And if I appealed to him being in my situation... Mm-hmm. What could he say? So I think he was just an honorable guy who knew he wouldn't be able to tell his enemy anything, right? Were you scared that you would be interrogated? Oh, I was really scared. Those guys were going to beat the crap out of me. Mm-hmm. I was. I mm-hmm. was scared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, you deal with, with mm-hmm. the hand that's in front of you, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, be, being scared doesn't do you much good. Mm-hmm. It's a... You know, it, it, it doesn't solve the situation, right? 
So, yeah, there's no question. Don't, don't, I'm not crazy. I was scared. Yeah. What was right? the, the hardest day? What was the toughest day for you as a, as a POW? Oh, oh. You know, I think I remember it clearly. Everyone in my pod, we had 12 guys in my group of POWs. And this is after we left the Hanoi Hilton and had gone to the zoo. So this is after the peace agreement was signed. Okay. And we received Red Cross. Our group received Red Cross packages. Mm -hmm. Right. And they included things that people had received from their homes, mail. So if they'd gotten mail with packages and things like that, and a few guys, maybe half, got something besides their Red Cross package. They refused to give me my Red Cross package. Uh, <laughs> and we speculate, at least uh, my senior ranking officer speculated that it was because in interrogation, I, I'm going to tell you a secret. When I'm scared to death, I smile and I laugh. It's, it's automatic. Mm. Okay. Seems silly, but the, honestly, I'm trying to make a joke and I'm, I'm trying to laugh about it because mm. I'm just scared. Benudied, mm -hmm. right? And our interrogators did not like that. They thought I was making fun of them. Mm -hmm. And so I got an F basically in interrogation 101 from the, from the bad guys. And my SRL thought that that was the reason that Hector, you just got to learn not to, not to laugh at these guys. I said, I'm not laughing at them. I'm just laughing because I'm scared. <laughs> you know? mm. And he says, yeah, well, okay. You know, but I didn't get my Red Cross package. And that was disturbing to me. That was, that just was painful. Right. And it's probably the lowest point I had. I don't spend a lot of time on low points. It's just not my nature. And then another low point was when someone in the camp said that he was pretty certain that somebody had either gotten injured or killed during my search and rescue. Uh -huh. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was a kick in the gut, you know, that kind of thing well, it would bother anybody, right? So I, I thought there was a possibility. Later, I found out no one was killed, which was a relief. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but at that time, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about interrogations and how you have gotten through them. I know you, you mentioned that one of your coping mechanisms is when you're scared, when you're anxious, maybe you start laughing. That didn't serve you well, and you knew that, but sounds like you couldn't help but do that <laughs> yeah, well, it got bad enough. I, I, the other the other was that our interrogators we didn't have the russian interrogators we didn't have the cuban interrogators who may have been a little more sophisticated than these guys but these were guys who'd been interrogating our guys for a good time and they would ask technical questions that were just ridiculous sometimes meaning and, that you wouldn't have the answers to those well, certainly if it was really technical, it would be inappropriate for me to answer for one. But for another, I'll, I'll give you an example. One interrogation question was, there is something I do not understand. This was the interrogator, right? He says, one of your fellow airmen, he was shot down by one of our MiGs, okay? He said, the MiG flew up behind him and fired a missile into the back end of his airplane. Mm-hmm. And I told him what we referred to that. But the expression we have for that is not, not very pleasant. But what is it? Anyway, uh, well, pardon me. Uh, you can edit this out if you have to. <laughs> it's called getting assholed. You know. I, you know, I, I may keep it. <laughs> whatever. Anyway, that's the expression. And um, so I didn't feel bad about telling him that, you know. And he goes, but no, no. What I do not understand is why your fellow flyer did not hear him coming. Okay, now that's a perspective from somebody on the ground mm -hmm. thinking it's very loud, mm -hmm. and how could you not hear a jet coming up on you? Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> there's all kinds of physical reasons <laughs> why mm -hmm. that's a ridiculous question, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I didn't laugh. That was one of the times I, was, I, was, I didn't laugh. I, I said, mm, well, you know, uh, maybe he was on the radio. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, I had so much fun with him reacting. Oh, okay, and he wrote that down. And I go, oh, well, okay, good. Point for the guys, you know. Let them track that down, you know. Anyway, so there were many little instances like that that were like 
just just ways to kind of oh and the other is they like to hear themselves talk so i would ask them questions mm. and then would talk and it was only so long they were going to keep me in interrogation and that worked pretty well and so, so did you know then or did you figure out at some point that the interrogations all have time constraints and you're only there for an hour two hours yeah yeah oh that was that was pretty clear pretty early so it was clear they didn't have a lot of time and so i try and keep them talking as much as possible and they love to hear themselves talk about how great they were so i i'd encourage that and they would i'd listen very attentively do you remember if at any point you experienced a complete just complete and utter despair loss of hope maybe Oh, I, I'm, I'm honestly afraid not. It, it just, one, I knew about the peace talks that had, that had collapsed in October mm-hmm. prior to, and I had very little interrogation time prior to the bombing. Remember, I arrived at the Hanoi Hilton on the 14th of December, and on the 18th, the bombing started. So four days. Mm-hmm. But I knew the bombers, the buffs were coming to Hanoi before they were coming because of an intel officer who could keep a secret. <laughs> so I knew about that the whole time while I was there. And I knew that that was going to have an impact on the talks. I didn't know it would happen as quickly as it did, but I knew it should have a significant impact on the talks and that we were much more likely to be released than not sooner than later. So I, I mean, that was maybe, maybe, in one way, that might have been self-delusion, and I might have been very disappointed if we'd have gone six months and nothing had happened. But that isn't how it panned out. It panned out, you know, kind of exactly as projected, better than I expected. How did you cope with being in those conditions and being away from family, not knowing, although having some information that you could be released soon, but not really knowing and not having enough certainty. How did you cope with that? What kinds of things you said to yourself, you thought, maybe routines that you've created? Let's turn this around. I honestly was much more, I I knew where I was. This is part of my mental preparation for going into combat was I knew what I was doing. I knew why I was doing it. Mm I knew that it was dangerous and that not everybody came back every day from our sorties uh, out of my squadron. And so I knew it was always a possibility. So my expectations were consistent with one of the, you know, not so pleasant things that might happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was really much more concerned. I was fairly certain that I was missing in action, that I wasn't confirmed captured because of the way things went down. And I was more concerned with my family and my wife Interesting. and how she was dealing with this or, you know, what she knew. I knew where I was. I knew I was alive. She didn't know I was alive. She didn't know. They didn't know what was happening. And I know that that lack of knowledge about someone you love is so painful. And that bothered me. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to, to this idea of creating routines. I just finished reading Leading with Honor, a book by Lee Ellis, who was a POW in the, in the same um, Hanoi Hilton camp. And a lot of what he talked about was creating routines or creating some type of structure for the day so that there's not enough room to ruminate and be anxious and worry about things that you don't have control over. So was there anything at all that you created for yourself? Maybe, you know, every day you promised yourself to do one thing or you you had organization or structure that helped you get through the day? Well, okay, let me break this into three parts, I think. And I may end up forgetting what the last one is because that's usually what happens when I say three. (laughs) First of all, Understand that when I got to POW camp, it was apparent immediately, very, very early on, that there existed an Air Force organization Mm -hmm. in the camp. I was very quickly apprised of who the senior ranking officer was. And this was inside the POW pipeline, not something the enemy told us about, right? I knew that very early on that there was a communications officer, that there was a chapel rep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Basically, there was a, a structure of discipline and guidance, got word about what the camp policies were about escape and things like that. So I didn't build that. 
that was built by people who came before me and who probably built that under great duress. It's one of the reasons for all the respect that I think every FNG, every friggin' new guy has for every friggin' old guy. Mm-hmm. They were part of building something that was at a time when it was very, very difficult to build. Okay. So some of the routine was being part of that. Okay. The other part was I had some some considerable wounds and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I had a routine. One of the things they gave us early on, it was fairly, it was cold. It was cold enough for ice to form on puddles in places when I was captured. And when I got to POW camp, I went into an act that I was feeling and was, you know, basically I acted like I was dying. Okay. And it was real easy to do because when they finished getting transported, the guards who transported me went back in the truck that they'd arrived in. And I stayed there uh, transitioning into the camp matriculation before they put me in solitary. And from that time on, I couldn't even walk without help, mm-hmm. although I could run if I had to. But I, as far as they were concerned, I couldn't even walk. Sure. So they'd holler at me to get up, and then they'd grab me and try and make me stand up. And when I stood up, I'd fall down, you know, mm-hmm. and I did that on purpose, okay? Mm-hmm. It's part of my plan, Right. They put me into solitary confinement, and as soon as they left, I'd be pacing the room and looking around and trying to see what I could see. And as soon as I heard somebody coming to the door, I would go back to my cot and collapse into it and stay collapsed, right? Now, I was feeling dehydrated, but that, over a period of about two weeks, finally got kind of taken care of because they gave us some weak tea, and I absorbed every bit of that that I could get my hands on. Right to try and get my hydration up because I knew that was a problem. My wounds, my burns were infected. My chest every day would form a volcano because there was metal in there and it and it and it was festering. Mm. And one of the first things they did was give us this terrible blanket that was like pressed lint. <laughs> you know, it was uh, stiff at first, and then it took a while for it to loosen up. <laughs> and it was just wool fibers that were just kind of. Yeah, I guess pressed into a blanket because what would happen is every night I would go to sleep and I'd be holding my arms up because my elbows and forearms were burned. And every morning I'd wake up and my arms were stuck to this blanket and I would have to peel it off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the guy's roommates would turn away when I did it, mm-hmm. but I would simply peel off this, uh, this blanket. And of course, a lot of dead skin and blood would stick to the blanket. And then it would dry out during the day, and then the next night would be the same routine. In the morning, every morning when I woke up, the wound in my chest would have formed a volcano, and it would be hurting because, you know, the stress of that uh, of the pus that was forming would, uh, would stretch the skin and make it ache. And so every morning, I would break the scab and drain it, okay? And that was a routine my guys never liked to look at. Right? Mm-hmm. But I was just basically taking care of my wounds, right? Also, the two wounds in my biceps, I could have chosen just to leave it folded and comfortable. But then I started working right away, trying to maneuver the muscle back and forth and back and forth to try and make it start to move. And little by little, I gained control over the bicep. And then I can actually, you know, slowly with a with a good deal of effort every day, several times a day, I would basically put myself in therapy to be able to use that muscle again, the bicep. And so it got better. As soon as I could, I started doing push-ups every day. I couldn't do many because I didn't have an energy level to do many, but I would do as many as I could. So basically, I think you ask about routines. Uh, they were focused around solving problems. Okay, you know, uh, you know, I knew that I wasn't in the best of shape. I convinced the camp doctors to give me something. They gave me sulfa tablets. They gave me two sulfa tablets a day, and I knew that wasn't enough to do anything for these kinds of infections. So I basically broke them down into a powder and I put it on the worst wounds, and uh, and that seemed to help, right? Yeah. So those things I focused on and I never I, I didn't spend a lot of time other there were some other prisoners in the camp who didn't choose to give themselves therapy. They they didn't want to address the pain that therapy imposes. Right. Because doing that hurts. And I kept telling them, if you don't move it, they're going to have to break it 
and they're going to have to cut it open and they're going to have to do all kinds of stuff. And then you're going to have therapy. So you're going to have to feel that pain anyway. So work it, guy. Don't just sit there holding it against your chest. Well, uh, several of them wouldn't take that advice. And later they had to go into surgery and, you know, go through that whole routine. Right. Well, I assume with painkillers. So maybe that's what they were waiting for. But it just didn't make any sense to me not to try and fix as much as I could fix. So that's what I did. When you ask, where do I think these kinds of thoughts, these kinds of behaviors came from? When I was a little boy, I had a dad who was a very, very hard worker, right? And he would often injure himself. And he repeatedly just, his reaction was always, okay, I'll be back. I got to go to an emergency. Or he would simply bandage it up and keep working, right? He never made a fuss about any injuries. Once he fell off a roof and broke both heels and drove himself to the hospital. And the next day he was walking around on the little nubs they put up and he insisted that they do it this way. They put two single nubs at the bottom of each cast so he could walk. He walked around like that until the cast came off. Mm. Right. He was not a man who made a big deal out of pain. Mm. Right. And you observe that enough all through your childhood, and you assume that's the right way to handle things. I think that's part of the fabric um, that people with resilience learn, that you can cope with these things, that the best place to put your attention is not on feeling sorry for yourself or whining about it, but on trying to do something about it. What do you think made the biggest difference between those POWs who fared well and continued to stay positive and continued to in those environments compared to those who didn't, who didn't fare as well? I, I, I think, well, I, there's no, I don't have a, the answer, but mm-hmm. expectations. I think if you do a decent job of being real about what you're going into, people who go into combat are not entitled to survive. They, they may survive. Mm. Uh, even people who do everything right die right? Because that's the nature of combat. Uh, but if your expectations are that you're somehow privileged and it can't happen to you, then you have a much steeper curve to deal with when it does and you happen to survive, but barely. Because you've got a distance to go. You've got to recognize that, no, you weren't quite that privileged and you have to deal with that in addition to coping with whatever you're actually suffering the things you have to deal with. I think expectations are a big part of some of it. I think some of it is, I believe that everyone has a huge reservoir of potential resilience and grit in them. I think that the fewer experiences you have testing yourself. Here's another piece. I grew up as a runt. I was the smallest kid in my grade school class all the way through grade school. And I was the smallest guy in my high school class all the way through high school. I learned early on it wasn't likely that I was going to beat these guys at any physical endeavor in any consistent way most of the time. Most of the time, I wasn't going to beat them. So early on, I learned that what I needed to do was get stronger, to do the best I could, to get better. But the only way I was going to do that was to keep challenging myself every day to try to deal with things. And when you're competing against people who are physically more able than you are, it involves accepting some pain. You're going to have to push yourself to get to where you can be competitive. And if you're not competitive, you're not going to get grit. Grit is about the competition, not with anybody else, but with yourself Mm. to constantly try and be able to do more with less, do better with what you've got, do the best you can. It's a, it's an attitude. When people who, for example, live as farmers in small family farms, they, they develop grit, I believe, because life is tough. They have to solve a lot of problems every day. They have to do things that are not easy every day. They do it without complaint because who the hell are they going to complain to? And that doesn't get the work done and the work needs to get done. Right. Individuals who never have the opportunity to face those kinds of things, never get challenged with those kinds of things, have a steeper learning curve 
It isn't that they haven't got it in them. It's that life hasn't given them those opportunities. So I have a lot of faith that nothing about the next generation makes them less able to have grit and resilience. But I believe the tough part is how do you compensate for a life that has basically coddled you versus a life that that hasn't? What's the suitable substitute for that so that you can internalize that there is no situation you can't at least get through or at least go down fighting to get through? Is there something that you can recommend to our listeners, some habit, some experience, something that will will help them become greedier? Well, don't don't ever stop challenging yourself. Mm. And when presented with something new and novel, don't turn away because it's not what you're used to. Mm. You know, that adaptability is a big part of grit. It's it says I'm not going to get faced with something that I can't at least try to address, at least try to deal with, at least sample. It also makes for a much, much more colorful life. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I have so many more questions, but we're definitely uh, over time. (laughs) I I love, I know. I I know, I know. I I apologize for that. No, no, I really do want to ask you more questions, um, but maybe... This is a good place to to wrap up. Is there something that I'm not asking you that you feel is is important to get the message across as as we talk about grit and resiliency? I really believe that often in crises, it becomes very apparent. Very ordinary people end up doing extraordinary things. And when you look across the world with people whose lives are so much more challenging than ours here in the United States, the things they get through, we would consider them just extraordinary. It should give you faith and belief in yourself that for someone who, who wants to have grit or develop resilience, you do it by doing it. You learn it by challenging yourself, by pushing a little harder, by knowing that you can get through this without just whining and complaining, mm-hmm. that you can get through it by acting, by thinking, by problem solving. People in special ops What's extraordinary about them is to a man, to a woman, they are coping machines. They bring with them a bag of resolve to cope, to solve, to endure, to get it done. I don't know what else to say. I I, I was reading an article the other day about endurance training. They said, if you want to be better at being tough, then learn how to be better at being tough. <laughs> just, be, just be better at being tough. You well, know? you know, it can be a habit, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it can be, it's like anything else. It's a, it's a, it's a different kind of muscle memory, mm-hmm. right? If your instant reaction to discomforts in life is to whine, complain, give other people a hard time about it, then it gets tougher to deal with those things that life throws at you. Yeah. And frankly, if you're going to survive... Uh, and all of us, I think, would like the idea of doing that. Yeah. Why make it harder on yourself by not practicing the things that come in handy when you get into survival situations? Yeah. Why not work at it? Thank you so much. I, I, I love hearing your story. So interesting and very inspiring. And I just love the ease and the humor that you bring to the story. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. I have a pleasure talking to you. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical or psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's anna.v.fedotova.mil at mail.mil.